Thanks for tuning in to Mysteries of the Mind, a podcast revealing the way our unconscious minds shape our lives. And now, here's your host, Dr. Michael Bader. Today, I'm going to do something different. I've been talking all year over the course of 48 podcasts about um, the traumas of childhood, about how um, what happens in our childhood can damage us, how we defend against it, and at times even how we transcend it. And I've uh, mentioned some patients that I've treated um, and talked a lot about theory. Today, I'm going to do something a little different, and I'm going to talk about myself, my own personal history and psychology. Uh, And I'm going to sort of open the kimono, if you will, and give you a sense of how I have seen these issues play out in my own life. And the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to read an essay that I wrote uh, quite a few years ago on the occasion of my father's death. Uh, It's called Saying Goodbye, and it's part of a collection um, called The Face in the Mirror. Writers Reflect on Their Dreams of Youth and the Reality of Age, edited by Victoria Zackheim. So I'm going to read this essay to you today and give you a sense of how I think these issues have played out in my own development. What the hell am I doing here? Sitting in a hospital room in Kansas City, watching my father as he pretends to understand something a visitor is saying, pretending because I know that the cancer in his brain makes him confused most of the time. It it isn't that I question my decision to come visit him. It's that I know it's for the last time. I'll be leaving in a few minutes to return to San Francisco. So I imagine standing up, crossing over to his bedside and saying, I'm leaving now, Dad, and, and what? Not see you later or take care of yourself, as I usually say to him as I suppose I usually do with everyone I leave, whether it's my wife when I leave for work in the morning or a casual friend after a chance meeting in the supermarket. See you later. Take care. No. But am I supposed to say something honest like, I've always loved you, Dad, except when I imagined smashing your face with a baseball bat because I thought you ruined my life. Or just something small and comforting, like, I have to go, Dad. I'll be thinking about you. Love you. I mean, is this supposed to be an important moment? You know, like the farewell scene in Star Trek, where a dying Spock touches Kirk's hand through the glass and says, live long and prosper. For a minute, I feel detached from my body, floating up into space, Looking down on the room, on my father, his diminished physique, bald head, and a face inscribed in my memories and dreams, and me sitting across from him. But me at 6 or 12 or 18, certainly not 55. 55? What happened? Are you fucking kidding me? 
And now this 55-year-old man is going to get up and say goodbye forever to his father? Impossible. Despite the fact that this is supposed to be what happens, you know, parents die, to me it seems insane. How could this possibly be the natural order of things? I've never been in a more unnatural situation in my life. Other folks might think my father is in his 80s. I know he's really in his 40s, and I'm a kid. When I was young, very young, my father was the master of the universe. He'd go off to work in Manhattan on the train every day. He looked like Don Draper on Mad Men. Here's how great my father was. I once witnessed our family doctor, Dr. Lamberto, Give my father a penicillin injection in his left bicep. My father didn't flinch, not even a little. In those days, the prospect of a shot was utterly terrifying to me, but my father was so strong that he felt neither fear nor pain. Here's another example of his greatness. When we were down at the Jersey Shore in the summer, my father would sometimes put me on his shoulders and go out into the ocean and stand while waves either carried us up and down or crashed over us. A wave might get him, but he'd make sure it didn't get me. See, my father wasn't just great in those days. He was a great man. He was the ultimate of masculinity. And his masculine power wasn't just physical, but mental. For example, he knew everything. He worked for Bell Telephone Laboratories, probably designed Telstar, the video phone, microwave technology, and the first computer. I once found blue books from exams he took in undergraduate math classes at Yale, and I'd copy them over, imagining that the equations were the key to space travel or nuclear fission. I remember once in fifth grade, when being a loudmouth got me in trouble, and my father's incalculable brilliance saved the day. See, I was complaining in class about the uselessness of studying history. The teacher, fed up, told me that if I thought I was so smart, well, then I'd have to justify my view in a formal debate on the subject the next day. Resolved. There is no value whatsoever in studying history. So I went home, distraught and embarrassed, and asked my father for help. He thought for a moment and then said, Well, Michael, you know, you could always just say this. There are three great problems currently facing mankind. Overpopulation, nuclear disarmament, and civil rights. Now, since these are all new problems, how can history possibly help us? He said it with authority. Of course, a devastating and irrefutable argument. Suddenly, all seemed right with the world. My father was right again. I simply repeated his words the next day in the debate. I have some vague memory that the teacher and the opposition were stunned by my argument. I probably forgot how, after repeating the words of the oracle, I realized I had nothing to say because I didn't really know what I was talking about. I could pretend to be my father, but eventually the pretense wore off. God knows I tried. I was desperate for his love, and if I couldn't get it directly, I wanted to get it indirectly to at least be like him. I wanted to be around his maleness, to bask in it, plug into it, and somehow, some way, take it into and onto myself. 
in the mornings, my father had a long bathroom ritual. I'd sometimes go into his bathroom to tell him something and be hit with a melange of olfactory sensations that I can remember to this day. Now today, those smells would no doubt trigger, I don't know, projectile vomiting. But in those days, they equaled maleness because they were associated with my father. Menin, Old Spice, Barbasol, Vitalis, Kent cigarettes, the human GI tract, and all were perfused by the steamy warmth of his recent hot shower. I loved it. Here's the thing, though, about identification. Sometimes it's a poor substitute for the real thing. See, sometimes it's the only way of maintaining a connection with a parent who can't have a real relationship with you. It's sort of the best that you as a kid can do. We, we want and need to be connected to a parent. We can't live without it, actually. But if that connection is missing, then we substitute the next best thing, trying to be like that parent. However, when the normal process of identification, see, becomes overburdened with this additional meaning, it gets screwed up. The parent isn't taking you under his or her wing, isn't actually interested in your development, isn't really present in a way that lets you see what it's really like to be a man or a woman. You have to guess. You have to infer it from outward behavior or imagine it in your fantasy life. And the outcome is often something artificial, confused, or unrealistic like being the master of the universe, like never feeling pain or fear, like being able to solve any problem and protect anyone or anything that needs protecting, like always being so smart and knowledgeable about everything that you're never, ever wrong. I suppose I thought that this was what being a man was all about, <clears throat> but it's not. Competence and strength don't come out of one's mind and body fully formed. For example, when I took up golf, I went through a period where I actually believed that there was something innately wrong with my body, something that prevented me from hitting the ball a long way, even though all the evidence contradicted this. My real problem was I couldn't let myself learn, couldn't let myself be bad at something, with the optimistic faith that I could improve. See, a golf instructor once told me that many amateur golfers were three consecutive bad shots away from total madness. And I was supposed to just do it well from the start. I, I was supposed to know. If someone stumped me in an argument, I'd feel shame. If I was afraid of a conflict, I'd feel like a coward. If I avoided dangers, I was weak. I kept failing in my attempts to do the impossible, and that was simply unforgivable. I later learned shortly after his death that my father had to give up golf because it was too frustrating. See, he railed against helplessness and imperfection. It took me a lifetime to learn <clears throat> that real men accept both. Sometimes even Tiger Woods hits a bad shot. Of course, as I grew up, my father couldn't possibly survive the rarefied atmosphere of such an impossibly high pedestal. 
I find myself wishing he could have enjoyed it more while he was up there. I liked having a father I looked up to. He should have let me take pleasure in that. After all, the passage of time and a kid's growing awareness of reality eventually temper these idealizations all on their own. Unfortunately, my father couldn't enjoy being my hero, couldn't feel blessed by the opportunities I gave him to show me how wonderful it was to be a man. He couldn't enjoy turning our relationship into a mutual admiration society. I think he felt guilty about it or thought that such pleasure wasn't very masculine. Instead, he competed with me and bullied me. We argued a lot at the dinner table, and he always won. He drank too much and had a temper, which he'd periodically lose, reducing me to a quivering jellyfish. And he never, with one exception, conveyed any pleasure or pride in having me for a son. In ninth grade, here was the exception, in ninth grade, I played the alto saxophone in the high school symphony orchestra. And that spring, the spring of 1967, the greatest classical alto saxophonist in the world, Sigurd Rascher, came to play a concert with us, and I got to play a simple duet with Rascher. My mother told me that during this duet, my father grabbed her arm and whispered to her how beautiful we sounded. One compliment, one time, told only to my mother and not me, and yet it brings tears to my eyes as I remember it. The tears come from the contrast between the memory and everyday life. It's sort of like realizing how cold you are only when you enter a warm house. My father couldn't help me figure out how to be a man because it seemed to me at that time he didn't want me to be one. As I write this, I'm aware of some guilt and embarrassment, you know. Uh, okay, the internal chorus is warming up. And what's it saying? Stop being such a damn victim, Bader. Grow up already. Get over it. I'd have more sympathy for these voices were it not for the fact that they were there even when I was young, presumably young enough to be entitled to a complaint or two, but... See, I always thought that feeling sorry for myself was pathetic. See, my mother was a victim. Women were victims. Weaklings, not men, were victims. Besides, isn't blaming a parent for everything a sign that your relationship is still unresolved? In today's climate in particular, to resolve your childhood issues seems to mean to get to a place where you forgive your parents. No room for victims here. I found myself thinking that my father's post-cancer bald head made him look a little like Junior Soprano, Tony's uncle on The Sopranos. At the end of the first season, Tony Soprano is sitting in his therapist's office, and the therapist confronts him with the likelihood that his mother, Livia, has conspired with Uncle Junior to have Tony killed. Suddenly, Tony leaps up, knocks over a table, grabs the therapist by the throat, and yells, That's my mother we're talking about, not some screw-up in Attica stabbing you in the shower. See, we're through, you and I. We're finished. You're lucky I don't break your face in 50,000 pieces. No way that Tony Soprano was a whiner or a victim of bad parenting. He'd do anything 
even assault his therapist and have to listen to that crap. Of course, another word for that crap was the truth. And I suppose that all of us would rather be, as the psychoanalyst W.R.D. Fairbairn once put it, sinners in heaven than saints in hell. It's easier to consider that our parents were ultimately benign and that our suffering was our own fault. Looking back, I can see the Tony Soprano inside me. No, not because I always wanted to own a strip club like the Bada Bing, but because, like Tony, I kept uh, giving my parents chances to redeem themselves. As I got old, I asked my father to help write a talk I had to give or question him about politics or ask for advice about girls, not so much because... I needed his wisdom, but because I imagined that these roles would make us both happy. They didn't. In each case, he'd take over like he did with the great fifth grade history debate. He'd usually lecture me or try to say something profound. He, he felt like he needed to be William Jennings Bryan when all I wanted was a real life dad. And if he couldn't be great, see, he felt he had nothing to offer. That was both his cross to bear and mine. I finally confronted him about it, you know, when he failed to respond to the seventh article I'd had published in a professional journal. Chagrined, he admitted that he worried that if he didn't have a brilliant response or critique, I'd be disappointed. I told him that something like, quote, looks great, son, congratulations, would more than suffice. He said that he understood, but he continued to the end to follow what I think was a twisted edict, which was, if you don't have something brilliant to say, then don't say anything at all. Still, my father couldn't shake his fear of disappointing me. A few years before he died, I wrote to friends and family about a very scary diagnosis that my wife, Margot had recently received. Most friends and family wrote back and said the usual comforting things. You know, I'm so sorry. You must be upset. Let me know if you need anything. My father, however, wrote this, quote, Life comes at you sometimes like a thief in the night. Your life seems to be in fine order. Breaks are going your way. And then, as if from nowhere, dire news. There's an old saying that goes, God enters through the wound. Our spiritual hunger is most acute when we're most vulnerable, end quote. A thief in the night, God, wounds, spiritual hunger, uh, well, okay, but what about my wife? I'm absolutely sure that if my father had had the energy in the hospital that day, he'd be talking to me about Ernest Becker's views in his book, The Denial of Death, and frankly, God had better prepare him or herself for my father's lecture about the perils of organized religion. He thought he was pleasing me, but instead he was making it hard for us to make real contact, contact that I think both of us hungered for so much. That absence haunted my life. I'll never forgive this man, but perhaps I can give up my private campaign against him. Giving up is sadder than forgiveness, but also liberating. See, it was the only way that I could possibly free myself from the tyranny of impossible expectations, 
of him and of myself. As I sit there watching this sick and vulnerable father, his second wife, my stepmother, climbs into bed with him and rubs his head and sings, send in the clowns to him. At first he looks annoyed, but she ignores it. He relaxes, smiles, and tries to sing along. Isn't it rich? Aren't we a pair? Me here at last on the ground, you in midair. Send in the clowns. For a moment, he seems content. See, that's the key, of course, to getting through to my father. Just plunge ahead and smother him with love, whether or not he wants it. And above all, be immune to his crankiness. If he doesn't feel he has to please you or live up to your expectations, he can relax and be himself. His wife's way of interacting with my father is so different than was my mother's. My mother would take his moods personally, feel rejected, and sulk, a process that would lead to frequent cold wars between them. These wars grew over time. Given their histories, I suppose you could say that they came by them honestly. You know, the seeds were planted quite early in their relationship. In the last years of their respective lives, both my parents told me a story about a conversation they'd had a week before they were married. My mother had been working in a bank when she and my father first met. She loved her job. She loved the fact that it was social, that she could help people and get appreciated in return, and that she had some financial independence. The week before their wedding, my mother told my father that she was quitting her job because it was now his job to support her, and that her mother had told her that, quote, married women didn't work. In her account of this conversation, my mother admitted that, in fact, she'd liked working, but felt she was supposed to be a mother and housewife and be taken care of. It was a role that her mother and sisters had always aspired to, and she couldn't imagine making a different choice. My father remembered accepting this pronouncement calmly and agreeably, because that was also his sense of how women were supposed to be. He also remembered, though, feeling a sharp sense of disappointment and resentment. See, he had liked the fact that my mother seemed so independent and buoyant, and on a level that was barely conscious, felt the weight on his shoulders begin to grow. My siblings and I, with all of our expectations and needs, became three of those weights. My visit is nearing its end. Dory, his wife, leaves the room. It's snowing outside and cold, very cold there in Kansas City. I've been in California so long that I've come to consciously hate the cold. You see, it brings back too many memories of my childhood, unpleasant memories. This time, though, it brings back a nice one. November 9th, 1958 was a Sunday, and it was my birthday. My present was to be able to go with my father into New York City to visit the Museum of Natural History. It was a cold day, crispy cold. Because it was Sunday morning, there were no crowds. We bought hot roasted chestnuts from a street vendor. I was with my father alone, not watching him from a distance, not sharing him with anyone, heading towards a place that had special meaning only to me. The previous year, our family had gone to the Museum of Natural History, and I had fallen in love with it. I couldn't stop talking about it. 
For some reason, the museum was closed on this Sunday. We returned home, <clears throat> and he bought me a toy as a substitute, a toy that soon broke. I couldn't explain to him that the only thing that really mattered to me was that I got to be with him. Sadly, he couldn't see that either. In my own therapy, you know, I've always emphasized the latter half of that memory, the one filled with disappointment and misunderstanding. But as I sit here in this hospital room, finally, alone again with my father, I think of the first part, the part where we're together and the air is cold and the chestnuts are warm and all is right with the world. See, we don't resolve relationships with parents as much as accept them. What's done is done. No one can make up for anything at a deathbed. If any restitution gets made, it has to come earlier. I made such an attempt in my own limited way several years earlier at my father's 80th birthday celebration. My wife and I went back to Kansas City to celebrate the occasion. And you know, his birthday was always complicated for me because it's the same day as mine, and for most of my life, my father would, quote, forget to acknowledge it. Still, this was a big occasion. I worked hard on a toast for him. I thought to myself, what could I say to my father that would mean the most to him? What words would be absolutely specific to him and our relationship? When the time came, I stood up and I said this. My father is the smartest man I know, and I'm blessed to have inherited some of that. But then I added this. Even though he and I have been through a lot, a lot of conflict, a lot of pain, I never for one moment doubted that he loved me, that despite everything else, I always understood this one irreducible truth. See, I knew that this was what my father most needed to hear from me. Not that I loved him, but that I knew he loved me. I think sometimes we focus on the importance of being loved and fail to appreciate the need to be recognized as loving. Maybe in the end, that's what reconciliation is about. It's not about forgiveness as much as it's about recognizing our parents' common humanity, seeing that even as they hurt you, sometimes grievously, they were also capable of feeling love, that they were endowed, just like you, with the capacity for love. My father wrote me several days later and in his inimitable way said this. He said, events under the heading of reconciliation stand alone in my mind as the greatest act of grace I have been granted. To be forgiven and to be loved by those you have hurt so deeply in the past is miraculous. You never gave up on me, and for that I shall be forever grateful. Thank you, Michael, my son, my amazing son. So it's time to leave. I get up, walk over to his bed, and say, Dad, I have to go now. I lean over and kiss him. He looks at me clear-sighted and says, Look, if I don't recover from this, I want you to know that I've always loved you and been proud of you. I've always loved you too, I reply, and I always wanted to be like you. And I am in here, and I point to my heart. And then I left. Thanks for listening to Mysteries of the Mind podcast. 
To learn more about how your unconscious mind really works, please tune in next time. And be sure to visit Dr. Bader's website at michaelbader.com.